Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Tonight we talked to the Majority Caucus Chairwoman about the 2022 legislative session and how the upcoming primary election could change the dynamic in the State House. I'm Ruth Brown, filling in for Melissa Dadlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week I'm joined by Representative Megan Blanksma to take a look back on the 2022 legislative session. We discuss plans moving forward amid possible changeover amid the primary election. We'll review this week's debates for Republican candidates running for Secretary of State and Superintendent of Public Instruction. Later, Stephanie Witt of Boise State University and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press join me to discuss this week's debate and heated races. But first, an Ada County jury convicted former legislator Aaron Von Ellinger on Friday of felony rape. He was found not guilty of forcible penetration with a foreign object. Von Ellinger resigned last year after accusations that he raped a 19-year-old legislative intern. He resigned from the legislature in 2021 after facing a public house ethics hearing. He is set for sentencing on July 28th and could face a punishment of up to life in prison. In debate news, on Monday, the three Republican candidates for superintendent of public instruction met for a debate, including incumbent Sherry Ibarra, Debbie Critchfield, and Brandon Durst. Conversation ranged from literacy to full-day kindergarten to critical race theory. I believe we need to get government out of the way and let parents lead as God intended. You know, we've got a lot at stake right now in our, in our education system. We've all seen the things that are happening in our schools. Critical race theory, social justice indoctrination, the sexualization of our students. I've got plans and I've got the ability to make some serious changes that need to be made to fix our schools and to help all of our students succeed. At the end of the day, what we have to ask ourselves is if we're satisfied with our current education system. If we are, one of the insiders would be a great choice. There was ever a time to transform the needs of our education and educational system to fit the needs of our students in the 21st century, it is now. And we need a leader to be able to do this. I am the change candidate. This is not about the status quo. It's not about being tenured into a position with fuzzy data. It's not about political rhetoric. It's about someone who is a leader and has exhibited the evidence of that leadership that wants to help our schools, that wants to help our families, that wants to grow our state in the way that we know that we can, that wants to restore the value of education. We know that over 60% of our kindergartners are not prepared as they're coming front, front through the door for kindergarten, but we wanted to offer that resources to parents if they knew that their child was slightly behind. Also, as a former third grade teacher, it, this is near and dear to my heart. One of my goals is making sure that our students are on grade level by third grade for reading. We know as educators, when kids come into kindergarten with a gap, a gap that's already wide in achievement, it's likely just to get wider. And we wanna make sure we close that gap early so that by the time kids get to third grade, they have the opportunity to succeed just like their peers. On Tuesday, the three Republican candidates for Secretary of State met at public television for a spirited debate on elections. The candidates included Representative Dorothy Moon, Senator Mary Souza, and Ada County Clerk Phil McGrain. 
the debate revolved around election security, integrity, and the Secretary of State's role in Idaho. Only one of the candidates said he believed that President Joe Biden won the 2020 election. I've actually been on the ground, working in polling places, dealing with the challenges of poll workers, printing ballots, and all of the logistics that go into our elections. Many people don't realize just how big of a scale they are. Often, elections are the largest event planning operation in any community in our state. And I've been through the experiences, both when it's gone really well and the challenges that come along with our elections. And so I've learned from that. And I think one of the things we need in terms of a Secretary of State is that experience. So that when a county clerk or anyone else calls, that they have the answers to the questions, both in terms of how our laws work, but also how things work practically on the ground. The role of Secretary of State is very different than the role of county clerks. The, role, the county clerks are in charge, as Clerk McGrain has ex explained, they are in charge of the day-to-day -day logistics during the election season and preparing and getting uh, all of the, the records correct. The Secretary of State is much more of a supervisory job. The Secretary is titled the Chief Elections Officer of the State not to run elections, but to oversee the election laws that we have on our books and to make sure that those laws are enforced and updated as needed. Uh, I understand that after the abs all absentee ballot election primary, that there is a lot of concern about how poll watchers were treated, how they were not allowed to come into the room and watch it when watch the machines when they were tabulating. Uh, so uh, there were a couple of times I had to call the Secretary of State's office and say if uh, my poll watcher leaves this county, they're not going to be able to come back in through that door. So um, th there was a lot of trial and error during that period. But fact of the matter is, everybody serves a certain position during elections. And as an educator, one of the first things I would do is go to all 44 counties and make sure everybody understands what their job is and what it entails. Joe Biden was elected president during that election, but one of the things I've seen and experienced as I've traveled around the state is the concerns that Idaho voters have. I think when most Idahoans reflect on their voting experience and heading to the polls and the poll workers there checking them in, they feel confident about their elections locally. I do not think that Joe Biden won the presidential election, but he has been named president and that's been certified. So I'm not suggesting we would go back, but we have to learn from what happened. No. Uh, I think there was a big problem when we noticed at 11 o'clock at night all of the battleground states decided to go to bed and then they were going to start back up at 8, 9 or 10 in the morning. In my lifetime, I had never seen that happen, nor had most Americans who stay up that late to watch for the results. To see the full debates in their entirety, visit IdahoPTV.org. The primary election is scheduled for May 17th. In this week's podcast, Logan Finney sat down with county clerks to discuss election security and what the county elections offices are doing to prepare for the primary. Earlier Friday morning, I was joined by Representative Megan Blanksma to look back on the ups and downs of the 2022 legislative session and what we might expect after the primary. Representative Blanksma, I appreciate you coming. Thanks for having me. We're a month out from the legislative session. Looking back, you've had some time to reflect. What are you uh, most proud of for accomplishments coming out? Oh, I think the tax cut. It was a major tax cut for Idahoans. I think that was really important. I think that was a great way to return the surplus to the people who had provided the surplus. So I I'm really pleased we had that opportunity. Can and you to get it straight out the gate instead of waiting until the end of session to, to nickel and dime and, and pick. So I'm excited about that. 
For listeners who might not know, can you walk me through a little bit of um, who that tax cut might help? And well, it, it'll help all Idahoans. There's a rebate component, and then there was a decrease in their income tax. So the, everyone should benefit from that tax cut. Okay. Um, looking back, is there anything that you wish the legislator would have pursued more aggressively this year? I think that we had some options when it came to property tax relief that we didn't quite follow through on. There was another um, option, again, returning surplus to the taxpayer. Uh, there was a bill that got caught up again in the end of session, as things tend to do, that would have essentially swept any surplus to provide some property tax relief for homeowners. And so I think I'm a little disappointed that that didn't move forward. I think there's probably an opportunity maybe next year to look at that. But I, I do think we need to start looking at some of those options if we do continue to have these kind of surpluses. Um, shifting a little bit, you mentioned property taxes. Housing is a complex issue. Uh, this year, you helped usher in a uh, workforce housing bill that addressed $50 million. Mm -hmm. um, but housing is a complex issue, and are there anything? Is there anything that you think the leg legislature can do in the short term or the long term to address um, housing shortages or the lack of affordable housing? Well, and I think it's important. Um, there are some uh, there's some misinformation out there about that workforce housing bill. So it's not government housing. Some people are billing that as a government housing bill. That's not at all what it is. What it does is to provide that gap between what um, developers can get privately funded and financed um, versus what they need to actually complete the project. And so it's just a gap component. So it's not government housing. So it just is encouraging development. And it's encouraging development not just for low, but for also middle income earners here in the state of Idaho. So that was the purpose of that funding. And it's done with federal funds. So it, it's it's not an ongoing program. It's, it's a short-term solution to what we're experiencing right now. There is a portion of that fund that's dedicated to rural areas, right? Correct. It gives rural priority. Can you talk to me about that? Well, I think there was some concern uh, due to the growth in the Treasure Valley, and I think sometimes the closer you are to the Treasure Valley, the, the more blind that you get to the rest of the state. And so there's always a concern that those funds aren't going to be distributed equally throughout the state, and that was the reason for that, that rural component, is to make sure that even in other areas where they're experiencing growth, maybe not on the same scale as the Treasure Valley, but there there's an opportunity to to, to use that gap funding where appropriate. In coming years, is there um, something the legislature could do, or is? It's, it's a difficult situation, and, and as we all know, the economy is starting to slow down. Yeah. Uh, we're facing a potential recession, which I think is making everyone nervous. And so I think we really have to see what the revenues are for, for this year and where we sit as far as housing prices going forward. But I, I do understand that here in the Treasure Valley in particular, housing prices are amazingly high, just unspeakably high, and there has to be some solution. Looking back at the session, there were some spirited debates this year on the House floor. Um, as majority caucus chair, what do you, I guess what kind of a role do you think that played in legislation that did and didn't move forward? I think that a lot of what people don't recognize that a lot of the work is done in the committees. Right? So we try to vet everything through the committee process. That's oftentimes where we find errors in the legislation, problems with it, or improvements. And so that's why all of it comes through the committee for the most part. And, that, and we try to do that so that 
oftentimes it looks like there isn't a lot of debate on the floor just because of that process, because a lot of it is vetted through committee. Uh, I think spirited debate is wonderful. I think that it's entertaining, of course, to watch. I think there were times that some people stepped over the line and got a little personal, and you hate to see that, because it should be about policy setting, not personalities, when it comes to that kind of debate. Last year, or this year, did uh, bring out quite, it made the divide between the House Republican Caucus uh, much more clear. Um, are those worse than years past? Um, I think there will always be um, subsets within the caucus. We have a caucus of 58 members, so that's 58 out of 70 in the House, meaning our caucus, when we stick together, can run the floor. That's it's that type of supermajority, and very few houses throughout the United States have that kind of supermajority. In fact, Hawaii, I believe, is the only one that enjoys a 100% supermajority, so, um, and it's of the Democrat Party, of course. But um, it does create um, some conflicts because that is a lot of people to get rowing in the same direction. And so when you have a lot of strong personalities and a lot of strong beliefs, and you've got people from all over the state, they're they're looking for different things for their districts and, and that creates conflict. And so we do our best to try to work together. Sometimes we're better at it than others. Did the upcoming primary play a role in that? I think I would not be telling the truth if I made any comments about people not looking at, at potential elections. And so I think uh, that's a inherent in the system. If you're up for a re-election every two years, then obviously that's going to have some impact on how you comport yourself uh, for good or for ill. So I believe there, there, I think on the part of some folks, there, there was that need to get certain information out. Speaking of the primary, we know House ma Majority Leadership will have a big uh, changeover in the 2023 session, what role will that play? Yeah, I... bets on speaker. Yeah, any bets on speaker. Yeah, I'm gonna step away from that one. That's gonna be um, the will of the caucus. As you know, we're looking at a huge turnover. I mean, there's a massive turnover. We had a lot of people retiring. Of course, the speaker um, left to go run for lieutenant governor. And so the, the speakership, who attains that will be interesting because that'll set a tone as as well as the other positions in majority leadership on, on the function of the House floor. So I, we're all watching the primary. Um, we've seen uh, numbers anywhere from in the 20s to the 30s on what the turnover can look like and with a House of 70 members, that makes a huge difference. So I, I'm sure that majority leadership will reflect the will of the caucus and we just need to see what that caucus looks like. Representative Langsman, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Today I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Witt of Boise State uh, and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. On Monday, the three Republican candidates for superintendent of public instruction uh, met here at Public Television Studios for a debate. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Witt, do you think they successfully differentiated themselves for voters? Well, of course, that's that's their main goal, right? Because they're they're trying to establish their uh, route among the base, and I think that clearly uh, Durst is different from the other two, from Critchfield and Ibarra. But the real the real challenge is for Critchfield and Ibarra to demonstrate what is the difference between those two people. They both have relevant experience in in education administration. Critchfield was on a state on a school board. She 
uh, worked at the Idaho State Board of Education, and Ibarra, of course, is the incumbent. So they both have uh, experience that's relevant, and, and they're trying to sell that experience to the voters most effectively. Uh, Betsy? Yeah, I think that, that Durst clearly differentiated himself from the other two um, in the course of the debate. And, and we also saw some differences between Critchfield and Ibarra. Ibarra very clearly has grown since she's been in that role. When she first came in as a former um, educator, uh, she really struggled to get her feet on the ground as state superintendent. And it's clear that her confidence has grown greatly. On the other hand, her relationship with the legislature has not been very good. And most of the things that she has celebrated as successes have been things that really originated with the governor's office. Although often she's made her own proposals, sometimes they haven't gone as far as the governor's proposals, and the legislature and the governor have kind of been on the same page. And I think that's part of what Critchfield was trying to um, point out in differentiating herself from Ibarra, that she has these relationships with the legislature, the State Board of Education, which is appointed by the governor, with the governor, she chaired the governor's task forces or co-chaired them, and so she has different types of experience. And so I guess really the question there is, did Ibarra successfully present um, a picture that everything's going right right now and that therefore she should be kept in? or? Did Critchfield or Durst open enough of a door to say that she ought to be replaced? Mm -hmm. Status quo was the word I think they used to criticize her, if you want the status quo. Well, and that's a little bit unfair. Yeah. I mean, who happened to be at the wheel when the global pandemic hits, right? So, you know, K through 12 education was completely disrupted. And in many districts, we had students working from home or from wherever, right, for extended periods of time. So. Um, that kind of gets hung around Ibarra's neck as this is your status quo that you've created. And there have been some setbacks that we've seen in student performance and purportedly on student well-being, you know, from being separated from their classmates and so on. So I think uh, she's trying to point to it. It's not as bad as it could have been. We have seen some, you know, gaining back of what we lost. But um, unfortunately for her, she's going to have to run and explain how they dealt with COVID, good or bad, and its impacts on K through 12. I want to shift the conversation to school choice. That's something they, uh, all candidates talked at length about. Uh, Betsy, there was a focus on rural schools and uh, whether school choice would um, work in that situation. Can you walk me through what That's you saw? Right. And, I, and I think that really Critchfield kind of scored the most points in the debate on this when she talked about her experience coming from a rural community and said that, you know, there's not a lot of choice when you're out in Alamo, Idaho. <laughs> you either go to the local school or there's nothing else there. Um, whereas Brandon Durst was saying, oh, let the parents decide. They want to send their kids to private school. They should just take the tax money and use it for that. And uh, you know, if you're in a place where there is no private school, that's hard to do. And then Sherry Ibarra really came out and with a very strong stance against private school vouchers, with the strongest of the three, saying under basically under no circumstances would she support that because she's a superintendent of public instruction, not of private instruction. And of course, there are constitutional um, obstacles to doing the kind of voucher system that Brandon Durst is calling for. Um, I, I think it was an interesting issue that it, that is of great interest, particularly in a Republican primary, mm -hmm. and that all three candidates had interesting things to say that, that might appeal to one or another wing of the voters. Mm -hmm. 
Another subject I focused on was working with the legislature. Critchfield uh, mentioned that she had built relationships. When what, Stephanie, what was your takeaway from um, the conversation? Yeah, this, this is a this is a tough one. All three of them have a different claim to the way that they have worked with the legislature, or presumably how to go in the future. Right? Uh, Durst was a sitting member of the legislature, although as a Democrat, so that makes his legislative story a little harder to follow in terms of being the superintendent. The uh, Critchfield and Ibarra have had their time talking to the legislature, presenting information. But I have to agree with Betsy that it hasn't been the smoothest thing for Ibarra. She has grown into that role, in my non-expert opinion, over the years. When she first came in, my memory was she didn't really have an agenda. She, the budget wasn't really put forward as coming from her for K through 12 education. So I think she has gotten better, but the, the far right wing of the majority caucus is really, spoiling for a fight about K through 12 education on several fronts, on vouchers, on critical race theory, um, and, and they're, they're gonna fight her on budgets and policy, uh, including, for example, like the, the core and learning outcomes, and we'll see those fights continue to happen. So she's gotten better, but I think it's a tough group. The legislature is a tough group to uh, adequately advocate for K through 12 education with. And the, she's, um as Superintendent Ibarra has had very high profile clashes with the legislature and with the budget committee over how public schools money should be allocated and what it should be for. She even took them to court. Um, I mean, the, it's not been this, <laughs> but, but as, <laughs> as Dr. Witt said, not a particularly smooth relationship. Not, mm -hmm. And there are quite a number of legislators who are supporting Critchfield. Um, so this is, you know, this there are a lot of dynamics going on here. What I thought was interesting was when, when Brandon Durst was asked how he would work with the legislature, especially given, and I have to admit, I asked him this question, <laughs> his most recent run-in with legislators in which he got he had to be escorted out by the police twice. Um, and he said, oh, that was just the two senators who didn't vote for my bill and we're gonna unelect them. Well, he's not gonna unelect the entire legislature <laughs> before being elected as superintendent. And it, it didn't, he didn't suggest that there would be any kind of productive working relationship between himself and the legislature, which could be a real handicap for a superintendent of schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he seems to be really wedded to this combative style that he's undertaken in this election. And I, you know, I don't remember him being quite this combative when he was in the legislature before. Uh, so perhaps he, he's, you know, grown into it or he's decided this is the effective style for me. And this is this is part of his rebirth as the most conservative Republican right. who used to be a Democratic senator. Yes. <laughs> On Tuesday we held the Secretary of State's debate, which I would argue was the uh, perhaps most tense of the three uh, debates we held. In the past, the Secretary of State's seat hasn't always been so contentious. After the 2020 election, I think people took a whole lot more interest in um, elections. Uh, Dr. Witt, what is, what is your takeaway on that? Well, that is, of course, one of the key duties of the Secretary of State. They manage our entire electoral system, state by state, in conjunction with county clerks, who are the people on the ground who implement our election laws. Um, and so that is critically important, and it seems to be a persistent uh, thing that a sizable proportion of the Republican primary voters don't believe that 
Uh, President Biden w won the election in 2020, and of course, two out of the three of these people that are running to be Secretary of State said in the debate that they don't believe that Biden won the election. Along with that comes the idea that there's widespread fraud in the electoral uh, machinery, right? And so those, Souza and um, uh, Moon are trying to really put that front and center. I believe there's widespread fraud. We need to close down voting and tighter and make sure that there's nothing wrong. Um, this is not a topic that I've seen discussed at length in any of these Secretary of State uh, elections in the past 32 years that I've been here. Um, this is the first time that there's been allegations that something is really wrong with the electoral system. McGrain is the candidate set apart who says, no, uh, we, we know there are threats, we are taking steps, we have a, an infrastructure to manage elections in a secure uh, way, and uh, I think the primary voters will sort out which side of that argument they really believe. It's it's kind of hard to make a case that there's been extensive fraud in Idaho elections when absolutely none basically has right. been found. There have been audits. Um, when the My Pillow guy <laughs> came in and made charges, the Secretary of State's office under current Secretary of State Denny went back and did audits and recounts and, and found no substance to any of the allegations. And so in some ways, both Representative Moon and Senator Sousa are walking a fine line because they're suggesting that there's something wrong in the system that has been electing them to office every two years. Yeah. Um, and they have tried to do that by saying, well, maybe we don't have problems here in Idaho, but they could come here, problems from other states. Or maybe our problems are small, but they could get bigger. Um, so I, they, they foresee this as a preemptive attack. Yes, right. and, and that's why it's interesting to hear the perspective from Phil McGrain, who's kind of been in the trenches running Idaho elections, mm -hmm. who says, this is what we're doing. This is what we've done to make sure that things don't, uh, don't go wrong. This is how we audit who's voting. This is what kind of ID they use. He has a lot of hard facts at his command um, to put out there as far as what's going on in elections right now. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding last night there was some discussion around uh, improving voter turnout. Betsy, you were there for that. What was some of the That's right, there. And, and there was really a, a surprising comment, I thought, from Senator Souza, who, unlike the other two candidates, said that improving voter turnout was not going to be a priority for her as Secretary of State. That has always been a top priority for Idaho's Secretary of State. And she said that she believes that is the role of political parties and interest groups, that all the Secretary of State should do is enforce the laws and then let all those groups turn out their voters. And we heard a very different message from both Representative Dorothy Moon and from Phil McGrain, who said that voter turnout and voter education is a huge priority for them as far as getting information out to voters so that they know they have the opportunity to vote, mm -hmm. and they know how to do it, and they can. And, and so very different um, messages from those candidates. Mm -hmm. Dr. Witt, did they make their uh, divide clear? <laughs> <laughs> well, they did. I, I think that I see the Secretary of State's race. You have McGrain kind of speaking for the uh, status quo and the, and the innovations that he's brought to voting and voting access. The you know, mobile voting things that now lots of places around the country do. That's really a McGrain idea and his commitment to election security and so on. And then you have the other two who are coming in with the allegations that something is wrong and we want to fix it. We were talking earlier before we started filming that that both uh, Moon and Sousa brought forth lots of legislation to try to 
tighten up the election process and generally putting barriers to make it harder to participate and prove that you should be a voter. Um, and those didn't succeed in becoming law, but, but they're, they're kind of coming from that point of view. So I don't know. Um, I think the, if, if the, the people who believe the election in 2020 was a fraud are going to have to decide which of those two between Moon and, and Sousa are really your best bet. If you don't believe in the widespread fraud and you're a Republican voter, you're probably going to look at McGrain. But We're going to have to leave it there, but thank you for your time, ladies. We appreciate you watching. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.